Good morning, church family. I'm Pastor Janine Smith, and I hope you've been around this past month in February. If we have the slide from the last series, if you recall our last series, there it is. In the wilderness, Jesus went, and there were two paths. And so we were in Matthew chapter four, and Jesus had to make some choices. The devil was coming and tempting him, and he had to decide which way to go. And what was it that led him? What directed Jesus? Scripture. Jesus responded each time to these challenges with scripture. Scripture was the guide for Jesus in these difficult times. And so, I want to invite us to look at scripture over the coming, month, the coming months leading up to Easter and let scripture be our guide as Jesus is modeled for us in times of uncertainty, in times of challenge, it's scripture that will be our guide. Now, who here goes on walks in the area, hikes? Are we hikers? Yeah? Mostly in Los Angeles, if you're a hiker, the trail is pretty obvious because you're kind of sharing it with a bunch of other people, right? <laughs> but if you go up into Yosemite, this, there's still a lot of people to share the trail with in Yosemite, right? But oftentimes when you're hiking, the trail is pretty obvious if you're in a forest. There's a lot of trees and there's a lot of bush and then there's that well-worn path. And what we saw before was there was this well-worn path Right, go to the right, go to the left. But sometimes the well-worn path seems to disappear, especially if you're hiking up to Clouds Rest or Yosemite, like um, uh, Half Dome. You know, the higher you go, the less there are trees and bushes and you're left with just rocks. Similarly, if you're hiking in the desert, you don't have the markers for the path as much on the ground. And so you use stones stacked up. Rangers will come and stack up stones to help guide you on the trail. So when it's not clear, I just wanna to get to the top of that and it's all stone, what's the best, safest way to get to the top? And those stacked stones are the guide. I wanna invite you to think about scripture as a stacked stone a guide for you in the moment. Scripture tell, told Jesus what, how to respond to the devil and it will tell us likewise what we are to do. And so those Karens, you'll see a couple here on the stage, you'll see the Karens are the cover of our bulletin. We're gonna be looking at those and looking at scripture throughout this month. So today we're gonna start with Matthew chapter nine, but I wanna give you a little warm up between where we were, chapter four, and where we are today, chapter nine. So Jesus is tempted, he resists the devil, and right after that he leaves the wilderness and he begins his public ministry. Matthew 4 tells us Jesus began by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is near. Jesus' way of doing things is here. It's now. And we talked about that on Ash Wednesday. If you missed Ash Wednesday's service, I invite you to check that out on YouTube and watch it again. But that, it's that repentance. It's turning away from sin and evil, but it's also turning towards Jesus. And so that was the invitation as Jesus started his, his new ministry. And then the Gospel of Matthew says he did, he did his ministry through teaching, 
preaching the good news and healing. And so Matthew chapters five, six, and seven are that famous Sermon on the Mount. And it, it's not really one sermon, it's a bunch of teachings of Jesus put together. Very challenging words of our Lord that we're called to live out. That's, this, that's why we need that scripture memorization. It's not just about the memorization. We have to figure out what it means so that we can be transformed by it and live it out. So that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So. The other thing Jesus did in those early chapters was he called to himself followers. And every Jewish rabbi of the day would have called to himself followers. Here's the system for how a rabbi would get followers. He would start with all children are educated from ages six-ish to ten-ish, on memorizing the first five books of the Bible. They called that the Torah, that was the foundation, and they had to memorize it, those five books. Those children that did very well and were also male could stay on. And from 11 to 14-ish, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. I can't even fathom that, that they would memorize that much, but that was their form of schooling, especially in a time when that was really how the oral transfer, oral transfer of knowledge occurred. You had to memorize it to pass it on. You weren't gonna write it down. Even to have paper was so special. So they memorized. And then those young teenage boys at 14 that were the best of the best at memorization, that were also well-behaved in behavior, that were also from a good family that didn't have any sneaky sins to hide, that were also um, without any obvious physical blemishes. You see how, how narrow it is. They had to have all these things. And then if a rabbi liked them, he would ask them to be one of his followers. You couldn't just be a follower because you wanted to. You had to be invited and included. And so it was a very narrow tower of being able to learn from the rabbis. And most were excluded from this. So Jesus goes along the shore and of the Sea of Galilee and he sees two sets of brothers, fishermen, one still fishing with his dad, likely young men catching the family trade because they've been excluded from the system. And Jesus says to him, follow me. This is a huge opportunity, an invitation. They're excited. They, remember, they've been excluded. At some point, they weren't smart enough. They weren't from a good enough family. Their body wasn't working right. They didn't, you know, all the things. They were out, out, out. Now, here's someone that says, I'll take you. You'll be one of my followers. And so Jesus has gathered these four fishermen, and now he's gonna gather one more. So, if you're able, you can stand for the reading of God's word. If you're at home, I want you to stand for the reading of God's word too. If you're during the week and you're listening while driving, straighten up. Because <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Follow me. That's the invitation from Jesus. And it's a radically inclusive invitation. Like I said, he's bringing along these fishermen that have been X'd out. And now he's gonna bring along a tax collector. So let me tell you, we're, we're not very fond of paying our, everyone wants to keep as much money as they can, right? But this tax collector system in first century um, Jewish culture was very oppressive. What would happen there is that the Romans, a thousand miles away, were in charge. And the Romans would ask, which local Jew wants to be in charge of gathering the taxes? And you can bid for who gets the job. And the person that says they'll take the most tax is the person that's gonna get the job. So some might say, I'll, I'll give you 20%, another 25, 30, 35, 40 even. And then, the person that says 40, the Romans will say, okay, you're gonna get us the most tax, you get the job. So the one with 40% though, how's he gonna get paid? He's gotta give 40% to the, all the way to Rome, so he can charge whatever he wants and he gets the extra. So 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, there's no limit. He can charge whatever he wants and then he gets really wealthy on the backs of his own people who have to pay a punishing amount of tax that isn't even for their area. At least here, some of our money goes to educate our kids and our roads, and if we need to call 911, the fire department comes, right? But they don't even get that. All their money goes away. And so the way the Jews thought of the tax collectors is scum of the earth. I mean, lowest of the low, because they're betraying you. And so even though they were Jewish, they weren't allowed to go to temple worship anymore. They were ostracized. And so what we see here is that Jesus is saying, hey, Matthew, come along. And that's so unexpected. And think about it for a minute. We've got four fishermen already in Jesus' crew. And you know what, we've got this Matthew tax collector sitting at the edge of Capernaum, a sea with, a, a, at the edge of the Sea of Galilee at a key point to gather taxes from who? The fishermen, that's the job in the area. He's sitting right there getting the money. He may very well have already met these guys. He's certainly met guys like them and he's taken their money. And he's saying, yep, yeah, you're gonna be part of my group too. So what we see is this other gathering group that Jesus does. I've talked about this before. In October, I talked to you about how Jesus brought in Mary of Bethany, a woman. That's unexpected. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 10, there's a list of who all the followers of Jesus, uh, not all the followers, but the, the 12 disciples are. And it notes a little bit about some of them. Some, it's just their names. 
But for two of them, it gives their professions. Matthew, the tax collector, who's basically working for the enemy in this government position on one side, and Simon the zealot, who could not be farther apart politically. The zealots hated the Romans, and they really hated the whole tax system. Not a few years later, the zealots began to act violently and rose up against the Romans and would likely even have killed people like Matthew. They are opposite ends of this system. And right here in scripture, it says, these guys are part of Jesus's inner crew. It's so unexpected. And so this radical inclusion of, that Jesus does of bringing in different followers has to be met in us by something. And I'm going to talk in a minute about how it's met in our devotion for Jesus. But I think the first thing that it has to be met with is our singularity in our focus for Jesus. Because I don't know how else these 12 and all the others get together. And what I mean by singular is Jesus isn't offering a Jesus and kind of discipleship for us. We're not following him that way. It's not Jesus and your career. He's making that clear. It's not Jesus and your family. He's also making that clear. It's not Jesus and your friends. It's Jesus and your politics. Jesus and your news. It's not Jesus and your hobbies. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not Jesus and alcohol. Whatever the and is, that's not what Jesus is offering. It's a singular devotion to Jesus. That's the only way these 12 get together. That's the only way we get together, is a singular focus on Jesus. And so the radical inclusion of Jesus is met with singular devotion. Now, if you haven't really ever felt like you've heard Jesus say, follow me, I want you to know he is. Maybe your heartbeat is beating a little faster in your chest. Maybe you've already had a time where you knew, yeah, he said that, and I said yes. Eleanor's, you know, yes, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, right? I want you to know that invitation is for you. And specifically, Rome, um, in Revelation 3.20, if we can put that scripture up. And before I read it, I want you to know, in first century um, times, the idea of eating together with someone else was super sacred. That was part of the intimacy. And so there was oftentimes rules about who you could eat together because you were considered one with someone. And to some extent, that's kind of happened to us for a couple years in the pandemic. We were really cautious about who we ate with. It was only our inner circle, our family and friends we trusted because you're sharing germs. There's a deep intimacy in eating with someone and that friendship. And here is what Jesus is offering. Here I am, and that's Jesus speaking. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is a deep intimacy that Jesus is offering. The first step to following is actually letting Jesus come in. It's powerful. 
And it's available to anyone. If you think you have done something that excluded you, you haven't. If you think because you didn't do something, it excludes you, or you didn't say something, you haven't. The love of God, there's nothing you can do that can move you away from the love that God wants to shower on you. Because in Genesis 1, it says God made each of us and declared over us we're very good. I want to pause for a second. Did you notice how I used some scripture there? I used Revelation 3.20, right? And then, and that's like a rock to us. It's part of the Karen, right? It's a scripture when I'm talking about the word of Lord. And then I referenced casually Romans 8. I didn't read it for you. I didn't even tell you it was Romans 8, but I was mentioning some themes in Romans 8. That's, that's part of the Karen. That's part of the scripture base for us. If this all falls, you'll forgive me. <laughs> and then I mentioned Genesis 1. I didn't quite quote it except for just the very good part. But that was part of the Karen too for me. So as I'm sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, it's the scriptures bubbling up in me that makes it really obvious how you need to follow. Well, that's just about sharing the good news, but anything else in my life, it's the scriptures that tell me the path. The scriptures lead the way for me. And it's telling us, here I am. Right now, he's knocking. And... I believe he's, if you've already accepted Jesus, he's, he's knocking still, even now. That's the context of Revelation 3. He's knocking again right now with something new. Maybe it's that you have a Jesus and, and you need to give up the and. God will convict you of that, but there's an urgency to following Jesus. It's a right now and an immediacy. So the radical inclusion of Jesus is met with an urgent devotion. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is, we're not going to go over this verse, but many have memorized it because it's such a good verse. So we're not going over it in our um, series, but I want to read it for you now. I want to read it to you two ways, which is why I've got this quoted card, but let's do the, um, the NIV. Come to me, this is Jesus' words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a yoke, when farming, a yoke is a heavy burden, right? Laid upon you to guide you in a certain direction with other animals. For me, when I hear that in a way that makes sense with Jesus offering a light and easy, I think of a tandem bike and I'm in the back. I can pedal hard or easy. Sometimes with my husband, I just kick my legs up and let him go. But, I, but Jesus is the one in the front. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in his commentary. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. 
walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. I think Matthew was pretty tired. I think he had abandoned the worship of God for the love of money to be a tax collector. I think he let go of family and friends for this money and he'd created a life he realized wasn't worth living. He wanted out. So that invitation from Jesus, come to me, walk with me, work with me, keep company with me, wooed Matthew to say, yes, Lord, I'm in. Because to follow Jesus was gonna mean he was gonna need to leave everything, including his job. And so we see another scripture comes part of the stacked stones that help us. Now, not everyone loved what Jesus was doing here. We see that the Pharisees come, and this is really the first time in the Gospel of Matthew where the Pharisees are active, where they say something, do something. It's like, oh, what's going on here? And here they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a how dare you? Because the Pharisees had really set up a whole bunch of rules and rules and rules. If there was like the Bible said to follow the Sabbath, they had like 600 more rules about how to follow the Sabbath and the layers and depths of how to do it. And it became like in Exodus when the Israelites had to make bricks and bricks and bricks. There were all these things they had to do. And so there's like this perfection and performance were placed above aligning ourselves with the presence of God. I'm gonna say that again because I think it's applying today. Perfection and performance are placed above aligning ourselves with the presence of God. So here's how I think God hears this type of silly bickering. So, a story. My brother brought his kids to visit with us, and they are four, eight, and 10, and they bicker all the time, constantly competing, one-upping each other at every single moment. Now, just so you know, I love them dearly. They're gonna be amazing and change the world. They're children, so that's why they're bickering. But, Um, constant bickering, and at one point, us adults were sitting at the dining room table, and one of us said, if they walk in the room in a few minutes and say to the the other, well, my poop is bigger than yours, (laughs) we would not be surprised. So we are chuckling at that. We all thought that was funny. We listed a couple other ridiculous things the kids could um, uh, compete against. And then they come in the room, not two, three minutes later, and one of them says, I know more scripture than you. I know 182, like that. And their mom was so mad, like a mom should be, and she said, she's like, I can't believe you guys. This whole scripture memorization, because they're in a whole program where they memorize scripture, is not about the number. That's the most ridiculous thing. You're supposed to be connecting with Jesus. And then she says, you know what you sound like? My poop is bigger than yours. <laughs> well, I thought that was really profound. And the last couple of weeks, I've thought a lot of times, maybe what I'm thinking, maybe what I'm saying, sounds to my parent God, my poop is bigger than theirs, Lord. 
I think so, I really do. I think it's very easy to get judgmental and to get condemn, condemning of another person and, to, and God thinks it sounds just completely and utterly ridiculous, the things that we're fighting about. And so I think Jesus, it, before I go into that, for me, I promised in the Friday video I'd share this. As a pastor, um, this painting was something I did just in a, a devotional way. I have no artistic talent, I know that. But for me, this symbolizes Esther and Esther's journey. The black is this great chaos going on. Purple symbolizes royalty. And it says in Esther 4, 4 uh, 14, that she's come to a moment of decision and her uncle challenges her, who knows, but you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. And so sometimes my job here, I feel like I'm in a position where I've got to advocate. I've got to step out. I've got to risk for people who are not at the table, who don't have a voice. Now, when I'm talking to God, I think, man, it's really easy to go between Esther and my poop is bigger than yours. It's the, the line between the two is so thin. And I think what God is saying to me, at least in some of my circumstances, let go of the past. Yes, you've gotta be Esther in the moment, but when you're digging up the past and dredging it up, then you sound ridiculous, Janine. And so I just challenge each of you, what are we complaining about? What are we arguing about, being bitter about, thinking we're better? It includes our ministries and our spiritual life and all those things. We can one-up each other and sound really ridiculous. So here's how Jesus responds when I believe he hears them say, my poop is bigger than yours. He points them to Hosea 6.6. More scripture. And, he, you, and here's what's happening in Hosea 6.6. 6. The last one. Let's see if we can do it. We're not going to do it. I'm too nervous. My hand's shaking up here. You all just know it's up there. <laughs> so in Hosea 6.6, 6, it's a time when the Lord is in the scripture in chapter 5 saying, look, I'm tired of these priests and these way they've been leading and it's ridiculous. And then they respond in chapter six, they say, oh, let's turn to the Lord. He'll forgive us in just two, three days. He'll forgive us. And he will love us like a spring rain. And the truth is God will love you like a spring rain. But God says to them in that moment, yeah, but your love to me is like morning mist and it barely lasts. And that's because I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in this case, we think of sacrifice as laying, you know, putting someone else in front of us. That's not what this is talking about. This is, this is like saying, I desire mercy over the system of religious practices. Because they had a whole sacrificial system of religious practices. So, the radical inclusion of Jesus, if we can put that key point up, is met with mercy. It's met with a merciful, urgent, singular devotion to God. That's what we're called to. The radical inclusion of Jesus when he says, come on, you're in, you're in, follow me, follow me. We've gotta be merciful. We gotta do it right now, and it's Jesus and Jesus alone.
So we're going to come to the table now, the communion table.